0: You're listening to NASA in Silicon Valley, a conversational podcast series from NASA's Ames Research Center to chat with the various scientists, researchers, engineers, and just all-around cool people at NASA. Kicking off the new year, we're trying out something a bit different and a little bit of a throwback. So we've been doing this podcast for just about a year and a half, and back when we first started off... I honestly was a bit concerned about how long we could keep this up. Uh, We've had 74 episodes so far, talking to a wide range of guests. But for the folks that just started listening to the podcast, you might have missed some of the earlier episodes. So as a special treat for this week, we're doing a throwback Thursday to August 3rd, 2016, which was only our second episode of the podcast. This conversation is with local hero and veteran NASA astronaut Steve Smith. At the time, he was still here at Ames as the associate director for international space science. Uh, Steve has since retired, but still comes back every once in a while for special events. Once you leave NASA, you never really leave. And we talked about how he joined NASA in all those early days working on the shuttle program. But before jumping into the episode, I do want to tease another special treat that we'll have on the podcast for next week. So on Friday, January 12th, we will launch off a series of special podcast episodes on the Twitch live streaming platform. You'll be able to watch the podcast live on twitch.tv slash NASA, and you can even participate in the live chat. Of course, afterwards, we will still post it up on YouTube, and we'll also have it on this very RSS feed, so you can always listen to us as normal. But for today, Let's listen to our 75th episode and a rebroadcast of our conversation with veteran NASA astronaut Steve Smith. Originally, what brought you to the area, what brought you to Silicon Valley, but then also just NASA in general, you know? Did you always want to you know, work for NASA, always wanted to be an astronaut? I grew up in a technology family.
1: Nice. My dad um, worked for IBM for 50 years. Okay. He was an electrical engineer. So he brought his work home uh, uh-huh. every once in a while, brought pieces of computers home and took us into the IBM lab sometimes to um, work or to test some of the equipment. For example, oh. the uh, rapid transit system in the Bay Area, we would go test the ticket machines before they were installed. So I grew up in a technology family, so it was pretty natural.
0: In in here, in this area, Correct. right? Correct.
1: Yes. You worked at IBM San Jose.
0: Oh wow. So did you like you went to you went to high school out here, but then you continued on to Stanford and then Correct. Wow. So um did you always was that the goal always trying to head to NASA? or did you want to follow your dad into IBM or what was your thought process? Since
1: of? I was born in 1958, um, <laughs> that was kind of the the first growth in commercial airline travel. and so we lived not too far from San Jose Airport. So my parents would take me out to watch the airplanes take off and land just because that was kind of the cool thing to do mm-hmm. as parents did then. they were always looking for something interesting like that. And when I'd see those airplanes taking off and landing from right near the runway, which you could do in those days, it just made me want to be a pilot. And then when I was about 10, 11 years old, we started the Apollo program. Mm -hmm. And so I was watching the moon landings on the black and white television at home. And I just said, hey, flying airplanes, cool outdoor adventurism in really cool places like outer space, combine those two jobs. Why don't I be an astronaut?
0: Oh, wow. So it was like from a young age, it was – Oh, yeah. Singular vision. I'm going to be in space one day. Yes,
1: we probably have 25 drawings that I did between third and maybe sixth grade of astronauts and rocket ships, uh, astronauts doing spacewalks in crayon and in pencil. Um, That was kind of what I was drawing then. It was my dream. And my parents saved all those drawings, and we still have them. So they're great to take, for example, to schools and Show kids that dreams come true.
0: So when you started off at Stanford, it was like in, like terms of choosing your major, and even when you went to you know graduate school and everything, that was all like singularly focused. How do I get into space? Correct. Um, oh, along awesome. <laughs> the lines, though, I
1: knew that the odds were hard. Yeah, so I thought I better also just become a really good engineer so that I can work in the space program or the electronics industry as an engineer. But in parallel, always dreaming of flight. So I started taking flight lessons at Stanford. Um, trying to get the aviation part stronger. I thought about going into the military and flying there. But in the end, decided to just keep going on the engineering path and in parallel develop this adventurism path with flying Mm -hmm. airplanes, learning to scuba dive, learning to do advanced scuba diving and advanced aerobatics and airplanes, things like that. So kind of building the the whole skill set. Both physically
0: and, you know, intellectually. Correct. Kind of getting both sides. Correct. Wow. So how old were you when you first started, like, taking the flight lessons? I didn't take flight
1: lessons until I was in college. Okay. But I do remember a really good friend whose father worked for General Motors. They had an airplane. And so they took me out to San Jose Airport on two flights to fly a small airplane around the San Jose area. And I'll I'll never forget that as a probably 15- or 16-year-old flying an approach into San Jose Airport in a small airplane and actually being able to control the airplane and watch all the instruments respond to the various uh, instrument landing system.
0: And knowing uh, what they mean. And, knowing, <laughs>
1: and learning what they meant from Mr. Mister Dick Meadow, a great man.
0: Great oh, influence. wow. And so when you finished school before joining NASA, was there? did you have like a job in between then? Or was it like you applied to be an astronaut? Oh, and like it well, just... it's
1: probably predictably <laughs> it? I joined Big Blue, IBM, because uh, my, nice. again, my dad had been there. It was really one of the model technology companies at the time, still is. It was a great place to learn how to be an engineering manager and how to learn basic engineering principles. It was just an incredibly famous and solid company. So it was the natural place to go. But even right after I started working at IBM, I was already sending in the application to NASA really? um, astronaut program every, about every two years mm-hmm. and was getting rejected. <laughs> really? Four how times. many times did you put Four in? Times. Four times. Don't <laughs> remind me. It wasn't until the fifth time. but fifth eventually, charm. Well, eventually, though, I decided... The only way I was going to become an astronaut is if I joined NASA, and my parents had also instilled in me a sense of um, community contributions and supporting your community and your country. And I saw um, the ability to do that by working for NASA, where we make people's lives better every day. So wow, so, so it was a good combination, and it worked. I worked yeah. for NASA for two years, and they said, "Why don't you become one of the astronauts?"
0: So, really? So you didn't ask? Like, I mean, so you didn't actually apply f- to be like an. Astronaut, you applied to be an engineer and work. Was that when you moved to Houston, or, did, or were you working here?
1: Correct. Between the fourth and between the third and fourth rejections, I decided I better think about going to work for NASA to learn more about the space shuttle and yeah. how they operate space vehicles and things like that. So after the fourth rejection, I moved to Houston to join the Mission Operations Directorate as what's called a flight it's the Flight Controllers—the people who prepare yeah. um, and operate the the shuttle during the flights.
0: Wow. So talk about that time. What was going through your head when you're like, you're, you know, you're driving down the Houston or, or even more so, not necessarily when you're going to Houston to start the job, but from that moment when they tell you, all right, you're going gonna to put you in this program.
1: Right. Well, you know, leaving the Silicon Valley yeah. and leaving IBM for government service in Houston, Texas was a huge change. I was
0: gonna say, the temperature change too.
1: The temperature change <laughs> and just the the geography of the area. Yeah. And, well, going to a government job. I mean, I took a pretty good pay cut to go work um, for the government at the time. But the dream was there, and I always knew that I could come back, but I knew I would also regret not giving it a shot. So I went to NASA in Houston for a couple of years, got to know what the process was like, got to know some of the astronauts, and it just bolstered my Application that fifth time.
0: When you start the training as an astronaut and you go through um, the rigorous, you know, uh, is, is, is it a cohort that like uh, of the group of people that go through training together and then it like dwindles off after time or how, how how does that work?
1: No, when they name an astronaut class, you go in as a group. We were nineteen Americans that went mm-hmm. in together in nineteen ninety two, and you train together for a year or two, and you really become close to each other. It's just like a sports team or in a business, a department working together mm-hmm. against a, or to achieve a common goal. So you're really bond, bonded to each other. They hopefully have rooted out some of the people before they select the astronauts, mm-hmm. people who, for example, might have a, a physical ailment they're not aware of or, yeah. or claustrophobia or might not be good working with other people or might yeah. always want to be the leader and not a follower. So they try and um, root out um, some of the folks before they select us. And the 19 of us got along great. It was great training.
0: And then, how long does after the training is complete? How long until you're? It's like okay, you're in this, you're in this shuttle mission, or, or you're, you know, how long until historically out? it's
1: varied widely. Really, some astronauts have flown just a couple years after they became astronauts. Some have waited um, seventeen years, for example. I believe Deke Slayton waited seventeen years. So, a lot of the factors that influence that duration have nothing to do about the astronaut themselves. It has to do with the status of the program. For example, the ladies and gentlemen that have been picked in the last couple of classes, their timing wasn't that good in respect of the shuttle stopped flying, where we were flying six or seven people, four, five, six, seven, eight times per year. Now we're flying on the Soyuz until our next vehicle is Mm -hmm. ready, and it's a smaller number of people per year. So it's not a reflection on the person. It's It's a reflection on timing and luck. I tell people that a lot of being selected as an astronaut and the experiences as an astronaut and as an employee at NASA often depend on luck and timing.
0: Right, so when was the first, how many missions did you do? I went on four
1: and the first one I was selected in 1992 and then I flew in the fall of 1994 and it was just an incredible experience. Almost too much to absorb really in that first two weeks.
0: I, I just kind of imagine, you know, We we talked about, like, the. we'll we'll get to the International Space Station, some of the science that we put in. Um, I was just imagine that moment of you sitting in, like, on top of, (laughs) like, in the shuttle or on top of a rocket, for that matter, and it just takes off and the G-force change and everything, especially for your first time. I can't even imagine what's going through your head at that point.
1: Well, my first flight was a pad abort, believe it or not. It's the last pad abort the shuttle program had. It was in August of 1994. So the engine started, Mm -hmm. and usually they run for six seconds, and then the solid rocket booster's light, and you take off. Well, at five seconds, the computers decided that one of the engines wasn't ready and shut it down. So the whole shuttle all of a sudden goes silent, and it's swaying back and forth, and there's alarms (laughs) going off. So... It was pretty exciting, um, especially for the families watching from three miles away. But one point I would like to make is that people would be surprised to hear that most of the astronauts, it's almost overwhelming to be in the cockpit right before mm-hmm. launch and you're thinking about a lot of things. But one of the things you generally are not thinking about is fear, I think most astronauts would say. It almost say. becomes clinical at that well, point? Well, it's like another simulation. Okay. There is a natural defense mechanism to think this, nothing's going to happen to me. Um, you have a job to do, but the families are the real heroes. They're three miles away; wow. they're going to suffer greatly if the thing doesn't go right, and they're the ones that don't get all the um, glory and attention that the astronauts get. So, it's pretty common to state the mommies and daddies and the siblings and the spouses um, are really the ones that are the heroes of of the astronaut f- part oh, of wow. NASA.
0: And so when, when you get up there, I, I remember a conversation we had at one point in time where you, you were talking about some of the science that gets up on, on the space station. You were like, as an astronaut, like, this is great. We get to go, go in the air and, and get to do these cool science experiments. So what was that like when you're, you know, you're in the space station or, or when you're up there, like, for actually doing science and you feel that zero gravity? What's going through your head?
1: Well, I tell people being in space is like a magic show because everything's floating around. You're going 17,500 miles an hour. You're seeing the sunrise 16 times per day and set 16 times per day. And you get to do this world-class science in this world-class laboratory that very few people have the opportunity to visit. So it's really almost like a magic show. You can't hardly believe it. And in fact, even now, 10 years after my last flight, it's almost hard to imagine that I was there when I see it overfly at night. About once a month or so, you can see the space station fly over your community at night. And, in fact, I saw it recently at a large gathering I was hosting. And people said, do you do you remember being up there? What was it like? And I said, you know, it's almost hard to associate You feel like it was a dream almost? Or? Exactly. Yeah, it really is. And I think people would say that about a lot of the significant events in their life. A lot of times exactly. event, you're just in the moment, fighting, making it work, and working really hard, like parenting, for example. <laughs> and all of a sudden, it's it's past, you know, or the wedding or the high school graduation. or it, it becomes a car. blur yeah. of memory. It's um, it's almost shocking to people to hear us describe it like that. But, for example, traveling eight times the speed of the bullet. I, I can sit here today and say, I-, I just can't I can't really fathom that. You can imagine if, for All example, right. the space station flew by on 101 out here. Mm-hmm. Later today, you and I went out there to watch it fly by. It weighs 100 tons. It's the size of a f- f- football, football field. field. If it flew by at 17,500 miles an hour, Mach 25, five miles per second, we wouldn't even see it. It would Why? just go by. And we'd say, well, when is it going to pass by? And I'd say, Matt, it, it just did. <laughs> it's not physically possible because of all the heating and stuff. But yeah. theoretically, it's it's the numbers you can't imagine.
0: Wow. And then so when you're up there, like what what's kind of the science that kind of sticks out to your head that was really memorable? or
1: Well, one of the feelings that the astronauts have is a real privilege to work on these amazing experiments that really smart people on Earth have devised. And we're privileged to work on them in these amazing, amazing conditions of zero gravity, for example. And it's very exciting to be part of it. It's also nerve-wracking because you don't <laughs> want to make a mistake. But you're really the hands and the eyes of these incredible people, many of which come, for example, the Bay Area. Uh, and you're working on the experiments for them. So it's a real privilege. It's a little nerve-wracking. But in the end, we know that each experiment we're doing is making people's lives better. Wow. And that is a huge, huge, huge boost to what we're doing and the feeling of gratitude and um, like we're contributing to the, the betterment of our society.
0: Wow. And so when you, when you came back, um, before coming up here to Ames, um, like leaving Houston and coming over here, you did a stint overseas? Correct. Can you talk about that a little Correct. bit? Correct. Um, I was privileged
1: to be a Johnson Space Center employee for 14 years in Houston, Texas. As a space shuttle astronaut and flight controller. Then I served for us in Europe as our diplomat to the European Space Agency. As you may know, the space program is really all about international diplomacy, too. Working together at the space station involves more than 20 countries, for example. So, as an engineer and and experienced operator of space vehicles, I was sent to Europe and was there for 12 years to be our diplomat because they're doing the same thing. Yeah. Oh, wow. It was exciting. Really exciting.
0: And so, did you always have, I mean, after you'd finished um, overseas, did you always have the goal of wanting to come back to Silicon Valley, come back to your roots? Absolutely. After
1: all? Absolutely. That was always the goal. When I left in 1989, I thought someday I hope to come back to the Ames Research Center in California because that's where my roots were and family were. Yeah. Um, I enjoy the all the things that you can do in the Bay Area and nearby. So, I always wanted to come back here. Ames is quite different than the Johnson Space Center in terms of their mm-hmm. focus. So I was a little bit nervous I wouldn't be able to fit in, but it's been fantastic.
0: So as you've come back to Ames, like talk a little bit more about your role, the things that you're working on here um, with the space station and how that fits in.
1: Sure. Well, Ames is really well located in the center of Silicon Valley, and I can talk about that a little bit later. But in terms of what we do here at Ames, we do many things. It's really a wide variety of projects that are worked on here. I'm involved with our space station efforts to take experiments that have to do with largely with biology to the space station and make them successful. And that involves using some of my operational experience. It also uses some of my diplomatic skills to try and <laughs> make sure we get funding and that we use it correctly yeah. and that the incredible scientists and engineers here understand what the constraints are in terms of schedule and politics <laughs> and uh, funding to make it successful. So it's not only to make the current experiments that we do in space successful, from Ames, but also to try and find new new experiments to do in space. For example, there are people here at Ames working on how do we do laundry in space okay. to use less water. How do you do laundry in space? <laughs> <laughs> right now we throw everything out. Really? Correct, yeah. The clothes don't get quite as dirty because they're not pressing against your body, so you can actually mm-hmm. wear them a little bit longer. But in general, when we're done with them, we put them into a vehicle that burns up on reentry. Wow. But we can't do that on the way to Mars. No. So okay. right now we can send things to the space station quite often during the year so we can send new clothes for example but on the way to mars which is a multi month mission so both ways for example using current propulsion techniques it's about 9 months each way so you really can't resupply as much so we're going to have to learn how to clean laundry how to, to clean to mars that. correct that's one of our smaller problems in terms of getting to Mars, by the way. <laughs> Amongst a, yeah. a slew of many problems yes. that people are working on. And there are benefits to that technology. If we can figure out how to use less water to do laundry, there's an obvious spin off to help people on Earth where we can use less energy mm-hmm. and resources like water to do laundry It seems in, it's, like the,
0: it's like the quintessential example of efficiency. Exactly. Absolutely. It's like all the resources that we take for granted here. It's like at the space station, you got to make it work. Exactly. And going to Mars, it's going to be even harder. Oh wow! And so, um, if I understand it correctly, we're like coming out of Ames. Was it like fifty different projects Correct. that we're working on Correct. for ISS?
1: Somewhere between forty and fifty. They span a wide variety of interest areas, but we are doing a lot for the United States here at Ames on these experiments.
0: Yeah, I always say that was one of my one of my favorite meetings when I first came in. Was that you sat there and you went through PowerPoint slides of. All 50, I mean, right. you kind of went through. And you kind of think that'd get boring after a while. But you're sitting there like, oh, wow, we're doing that? That's pretty, oh, amazing. That's cool. it's oh, pretty amazing. Oh, that's cool. Oh, that's
1: fascinating. One of the first things we're trying to do is get a list of everything we're doing at Ames to upper management here so that they can understand and be proud of the wide variety of things we do here.
0: Wow. So what are some of the major programs right now going, some of the major science that Ames is doing and working it up through, you know, through the space station? Um that the average person just wouldn't really be familiar with? A
1: large number of them are related to space biology. And what that means is how do organisms, like human bodies, operate in zero gravity? And so that's one of the real expertises here at the Ames Research Center. So a lot of them are deep medical scientific type experiments to understand how organisms react. And if we can figure out how they react, we might be able to better life on Earth Mm -hmm. because it helps us solve a problem on Earth. But we can also help send people beyond Earth orbit to, for example, to Mars. We also launched a lot of miniature satellites from the space station that try different techniques, technologies. And so Ames has a real expertise in small satellites. But we also have several basic technology experiments that people are working on, like the laundry in space, Mm -hmm. that we will work on on the space station. Another good example is how do you compact trash efficiently and possibly reuse it for things like building things so there okay. is one technology demonstrator here at the Ames Research Center that's trying to figure out, what do you do with trash? Is there something we can do better with it than just throw it away?
0: Yeah, is it, instead of sending it to go burn up in the atmosphere, Correct. is
1: there something else we can do? Correct. We have to think like that because Mars is a long way away. Yeah. And so if we're going to be gone for two years, for example, we have to think about how we can – do better with trash and potentially reuse it we have to be better with our use of water we have to be able to do laundry in space we have to be able to um offset the negative effects of radiation things mm-hmm. like that it's a huge number of challenges
0: wow so yeah even just thinking like the the space biology part i mean just think of like so much of gravity that you just take for granted of the way that your blood flows and the way you know just your your eyeball, for that matter, you know. I've even heard that like that, when people go into space, they almost have a bit of motion sickness. Correct. How right. is that? Or no, a... it's
1: not very pleasant. <laughs>
0: <laughs> is it uh, like, a, like a car sickness? Sure. Like you feel it's like kind of yes. not too different, yes. I, I'm guessing? Uh,
1: I can speak firsthand. That's exactly what it's like. Really? About, I think I've read about 60 to 70% of astronauts suffer from motion sickness when they're in space the first few days. The large percentage of those people eventually get better. It's just like having just sea adapt. legs. You just get used to it. It's like being on a boat. You feel bad maybe for an hour or a day, but eventually, eventually you get better. There are some people who never get better. But- um, I can't
0: imagine spending an oh, entire boy. mission every day being sick.
1: Yeah. Luckily it's a small percentage of people who continue that. But some other physiology changes. Your eye uh, eyes actually change mm-hmm. shape a little bit because of the lack of gravity. So we have people who, who have different vision on orbit than they do Mm -hmm. on Earth. So we've had to come up with special glasses, for example, that can be adapted. One of the real negative effects of being in space is the loss of bone density Mm -hmm. and muscle mass because you're not exercising. To move around in zero gravity,
0: you just fly all over the place.
1: (laughs) So your body just atrophies. So we have to exercise intently. I believe the average space station astronaut works out about an hour and a half per day for their entire mission just to try and keep
0: just to keep it going
1: going and so when we go to mars that's probably not practical to take a mm-hmm. large exercise machine with you yeah for especially in a small journey.
0: capsule or depending on how little in the space constraints you yeah. need enough space to exercise exactly. and to keep yourself so is there some other
1: way that we can fight muscle and bone atrophy hopefully maybe through medications for blue okay. for example and Just in the last month, there's been an experiment on orbit with a large pharmaceutical company looking at that to see if we can use some kind of medication to fight that. And the spinoff benefits for people on Earth is really obvious. There are Mm -hmm. people who suffer on Earth from bone atrophy or muscle atrophy. So if these medications can work for the astronauts, bam, we can help people on Earth. And so that's what we call a spinoff, and there's been thousands of them since NASA started in the late 50s.
0: So if somebody's looking for more information on on the space station and the stuff that you're working on, probably where is the best place to go, other than the the website, nasa.gov, or...? I would start at nasa.gov, and there's a tab
1: for the International Space Station. You can spend hours on that website looking at the different technologies and things we're doing. There's also a specific spinoff website. I believe it's spinoff.nasa.gov.
0: Really? So it just talks about the different technologies? Correct.
1: Correct. I think it has the top twenty or thirty spin-offs from the entire space program. And it's not Velcro and Tang. Neither neither. <laughs> I've which heard came that. That was space. one of the first things were, I learned. Those are myths, right? right? <laughs> so there's so. lots yeah, there's lots of technologies that influence people's lives right now that they don't recognize come from coming from the space program. In fact, one of the major ones has to do with microelectronics. Some people say and conclude that our drive to go to the moon in the late sixties and early seventies drove the miniaturization of electronics because computers in those days were gigantic mm-hmm. so that electronics had to be miniaturized well look where we are now with miniaturized Absolutely. electronics so if it wasn't the major driving force it was clearly one of the key ones that drove us to where we are today with this incredible to force
0: that technology correct. and it goes into being efficient correct in like small space small limitations and correct. crazy innovations come from correct. that correct that's excellent. Well, thanks for coming on over. I'm sure you're going to be our Jeopardy champion in no time. <laughs> as I keep bringing you back because it's like you know we can sit there and just talk for hours about this. Well, so this is I really, fascinating.
1: really enjoy talking about it. It's been a great career, and NASA really is making people's lives better. And to have us all working together in that atmosphere makes it a really rewarding place to be.
0: Excellent. Thanks a lot,
1: Steve. My pleasure.